The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So uh, today I've entitled the message, uh, Jesus' Burial in and Out of Darkness. And in light of what we've just uh, seen on the screen and prayed for, I thought it was appropriate for us to start today with uh, Paul's description of the gospel that we see in 1 Corinthians 15. And it reads like this. He says, so now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you and which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, one of the primary tenets of, of our faith and of the gospel is that Jesus truly died. Jesus truly died. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was nailed to a tree and became sin on my behalf, on your behalf. He chose truly the unthinkable and he took our place and he took our punishment. And God poured out his wrath on the Son of God and the Son of Man. And only when justice had been absolutely fully satisfied, only then did Jesus give up his life and died. His sweat quit dripping, his, his lungs, they quit filling, his, his heart quit beating, his body went limp as it hung lifeless on that cross. And the stark stillness, I just have to think of creation, must have looked on holding her breath in disbelief as if her favored athlete, her, her champion, her, her king and redeemer, now limp and motionless, would at any moment be revived and uh, be walked off the field. But that was not the case. The earth went dark and silent. See, Jesus plunged into darkness on our behalf, and it drives the faith of two men out of the shadows and into the light. So today we're going to look at the death and burial of Jesus, and it is a crucial part, it's a crucial part of the gospel message. So the text we're going to be looking at um, in this series, Come and See, is uh, John 19, verses 38 through 42. So you can follow along on your Bible or app, or you can just follow along on the the screen um, behind me. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in that place where he was crucified, there there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I think I've told you this before, but I, I, as I get older, I enjoy podcasts so, uh, uh, so much, 
and I find myself uh, listening to them, and I came across one months ago that has really just stuck with me, and, um, and it's about the nature of discovery. Like, like, how does that work for each of us? How do we go about discovering new things? And they talked about how biased we all are, like how prejudiced we are and don't even realize it. We're kind of biased to see things the way we want to see them and the way we expect to see them in a myriad of subjects, right? And this researcher that was being interviewed said this, he said that good discovery is less about the eureka moment and it's more about the hmm, that's interesting moment. In other words, are you willing to follow the facts where they lead or, uh, and not really where that you demand that they go? Will you follow the facts where they lead or where you demand that they go? And so um, as, I, as I heard that, I just thought, man, this has so many implications for us as believers, as followers of Christ, that especially as we open God's word, we have so many expectations sometimes that we have to wrestle with, so many biases that we have to wrestle with. Um, And so I hope that we are always willing, as this series says, to come and see those things in scripture that don't seem to fit our expectations. So I'm gonna pray to that end. Father, would you give us eyes to see and the courage to declare, hmm, that's interesting, and grow our faith and grow our obedience. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So the common fates of all those who were uh, crucified by Rome uh, was that their corpses would be taken down from the crosses uh, and then they would be dumped in a common grave just outside the city walls. They, we call it a pauper's grave, just a big hole in the ground. All the bodies would be dumped there and no doubt would be, become mutilated and food for dogs and wild beasts. And I'm sure that Rome's thought about all this was that this will... Um, Uh, This will cause everybody to think twice before they commit a crime against Rome or rebel against the empire. And no doubt the thieves on either side of Jesus ended up in that pauper's grave. And yet, that's not the fate of our Savior. You see, his burial unfolded very differently, and we should say, hmm, well, that's interesting, so today I, wanna, I want us to consider the men that were at Jesus' burial, the, the method of Jesus' burial, and the meaning in Jesus' burial. So the, the men that were there, there was just two men that were there, Nicodemus uh, and Joseph of Arimathea. And these are men of wealth and influence and understanding. They no doubt enjoy a very privileged life. You see, they're part of the, uh, the Sanhedrin Council This is a 71-member council, and these guys were who um, Israel would come to in all matters, civil or or legal or religious. And by the way, this is the same council that had decided that they were going to do whatever it took to have Jesus arrested and and, uh, uh, killed, crucified, and anybody that would step out of line and... Uh, question this plan, no doubt risked being disbarred and removed from power. And so Nicodemus 
and Joseph of Arimathea are part of this council, and it is now uh, that these two come out of the shadows. They have never openly followed Jesus during his ministry, but they come out of the shadows now, identifying with Jesus in his death and burial. And we should say, why? Like, why now? Why now? We should say, hmm, that's, that's interesting. So what do we know about these guys? Well, with Joseph, we learned in this passage we've looked at today here in John 19 that he was a disciple of Jesus. It says, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And then in Matthew 27 that we find out he was a wealthy man. In Mark 15, he was, uh, we read, a respected member of this council uh, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And then in Luke 23 that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to there, the, the, the council's decision and action. So no doubt, a man of wealth and privilege, a man highly respected in the community, but, uh, but as well, a man that God had his hand on and was seeking after the kingdom of God, desired to see um, God's will take place um, for his people. Uh, and then Nicodemus. What do we know about Nick? We meet Nick three times in the Gospel of John. The first time is a long, protracted conversation, and it begins with Nick coming to Jesus and being very respectful as he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, that you've come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And it sounds very, uh, very kind, very respectful, but, but the truth is, at this point, Nick, obviously, by the nature of that conversation, has a very surface-level um, understanding of who Jesus is. It's, it's a very flat understanding, and Jesus begins to um, uh, challenge him to truly understand what it means. If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to come and see, then you've got to be born again. By John 7, um, somehow his faith has begun to grow. We see him leaning into to the things that are happening. And the Sanhedrin at this point, somewhere uh, um, earlier on in Jesus' ministry, they are, they are upset. They want to have Jesus arrested. He represents the power that is being taken away from them, and they don't want to have any part of it. And, uh, and Nick buys him some time. Nick steps up, we read in John 7, and says, so does our law... Judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. So he uses reason and uses the, the, the law to buy Jesus time in his ministry, some time. And now, now in John 19, we find Nicodemus showing up here. So here's the thing. These, these men were at the top of the religious food chain, if you will, in Israel, Right? They, were, they were at the top of the heap. They were teachers, they were judges, they were governors of types, and, and they were men of wealth and influence, and they had much to lose. They had a lot to lose. And it seems that among the Sanhedrin, there may have been others who also were very sympathetic to Jesus' teaching. Um, they found it compelling and convincing, but they were afraid to openly follow after him. We read that in John 12 where it says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So listen to this. For, the, for they love the glory or praise, right? They love the praise that comes from man more than the praise that comes from God. So the fear of and the praise from men impacted 
their obedience. The fear of and the praise from men impacted their obedience. And what I know as I look through the pages of the Old Testament and see all the saints that were there, it impacted all of them as well. And you read through the New Testament and you realize it impacted all of them as well. And you look through the corridors of the the, the history of the church through the century and you realize it impacted all of us as well. And when I look in the mirror, I realize it impacts me absolutely as well. Even those of the most mature and bold faith are uh, impacted by the fear of and the praise from men. And so here's a few questions for us to wrestle with. The first is, to what degree does the fear of and the praise from others impact your courage to follow Jesus in a manner that he would desire? Like how much is that the factor in your life? The fear of and the praise from others. How does that impact whether you will follow Jesus and how you will follow Jesus. Another question, especially in light of this being the persecuted church Sunday, the, the time of the, the year when, um, hopefully not just this time, but, uh, but this for sure punctuates our thoughts about um, uh, all those countries where it is not lawful to follow Christ. What if that was true here? What if that was true in our country and you were arrested because someone accused you of being a Christian? So my question is this, is would there be evidence to incriminate you? Would there be evidence to incriminate you? And if so, what would that evidence be? I mean, if, if somebody said you're a Christian, it's probably because they saw something in your life, right? I hope, I hope there's evidence there to incriminate you because that's what I know about following after Jesus is that we are called to carry out good works in our lives. Our lives will have a particular aroma about them. So I hope that there's, there's evidence, as scary as that, as that is. And then my last question is this, uh, because John says that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus, right? He was a secret disciple, and this implied Nick as well, Nicodemus as well. The question is this, is it ever appropriate to have a secret faith, to be a secret disciple of Jesus? And if so, when? Now, I thought about inviting everybody here into a little time Uh, in our college ministry, a little uh, thing that we'll do from time to time, and I'll just toss out a question to them. I'll have them quickly introduce themselves to one another, maybe give them a little icebreaker question of what's your favorite cereal, breakfast cereal, and then they can ask this question of one another. I thought about doing that in here, but for the sake of time, so I see y'all all sweating already, surely he is not gonna ask us to do that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that question with you uh, as you leave here today. Is it ever appropriate to have a secret faith, to be a secret disciple of Jesus? And if so, when? So I'm letting you off the hook now, but you're on the hook later, right? Well, I did discuss this question with a friend of mine. We had lunch this week, and, um, and, and what we concluded is that when it comes to building relationships, when it comes to friendships with people that, are, that we're, we're getting started in, it's probably not best to say, oh, by the way, I'm a follower of Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. That might not be the first thing you want to lead with. You might, um, it might be better to lead with, uh, with character. It might be better to lead um, letting um, the good works, the aroma of your life kind of penetrate into that friendship and then when asked about, wow, what, what is the deal about you? 
then to give a defense for the hope that's within us. But here's what I know. Trouble always finds us, you know? Doesn't matter how uh, incognito we think our faith can be at times, the truth is trouble will find us and clearly what 1 Peter 3 says is this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, uh, Christ the Lord as holy, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. But do this with gentleness and respect. Here's what I know. Over and over and over again, God calls his people out of the shadows and into the light. Over and over, he calls his people out of the shadows and into the light. I uh, came to faith when I was 19, and a year later, um, I went to Texas A&M. I was just there for a year, so I'm one of the people that you hiss at. I'm a two percenter. You get it all out. Um, I went down, and I just kind of had the luck of the draw with my roommates. Um, I had three roommates. One um, professed to be a Christian. I think it was probably more in word only, uh, in title only. I had one that was an agnostic. His thing was, well, I don't think you can really know one way or the other. Uh, And then I had one that was an atheist who said, absolutely, there is no God and you are a fool if you follow after God, especially if it is the God Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. That was Ted. It was so hard living with Ted. Trouble seemed to constantly find me, conversation after conversation. I was young in my faith and mature in my faith. I did my best to live a life that would bring honor to my God, but the truth was most of the time I fumbled that ball. You know, most of the time I did not do a very good job of it. And this was hard because Ted was like the, the, the picture of perfection in so many ways. Electrical engineering at, at Texas A&M is an incredibly hard degree. Carried a 4-0. He, uh, I would think that, uh, that, that maybe he would be kind of a nerd, you know, and then I could like be more um, physically fit than him. But no, no, I mean, I definitely stayed in shape at the time. But Ted, like he ate perfectly and he was always staying in shape. And so even that, you know, he could fix anything that, uh, that he put his hands to. And he was always ready to attack me for my faith. You've got to be serious. You've got to be kidding Really, Shannon? And he mocked it on a regular basis. And I can tell you, it's tough to stand your ground when trouble finds you, right? It's never easy. So let me just be pastoral here for a minute. I think that God places us in in the cultural crosshairs on a regular basis. I do. I think God places us in these cultural crosshairs on a regular basis. And the question is, will I obey God? God or be ruled by my fear of or praise from others. Generally, if I, if I know the Lord and am growing in my relationship with him, it, there's a place where it is actually enjoyable to become more like Jesus, right? There really is. There's a sense to where, man, I want to... Um, be molded and shaped more and more in the image of my Savior. But here's the thing. I like that happening when it only affects me. I really have a, it's a hard thing when my obedience to God is gonna impact those around me. 
Because it's at that place where I am most tempted to compromise, that we are most tempted to compromise. Am I right? In uh, Oswald Chambers, I'll, I'll never forget this. I came across this, uh, this devotional on, by him years ago in uh, My Utmost for His Highest. And, uh, and he says this a little long, but it is so good. He says, if we obey God, it is going to cost other people more than it costs us. And that's where the pain begins. If we're in love with our Lord, obedience is a delight. It costs us very little. But to those who do not love him, our obedience does cost a great deal. If we obey God, it will mean that other people's comforts and their plans, they are going to be upset. And they will ridicule us as if to say, you, you call this Christianity? He goes on, he says, we can disobey God if we choose and it will, be, it will bring immediate relief to the situation, but it will grieve our Lord if, however, we obey God, he will care for those who have suffered the consequences of our obedience and use it for good in their lives. We must simply obey and leave the consequences to him. And then he, he wraps up with these very foreboding words he says, beware the inclination to dictate to God what consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to him. Wow. So these two, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these two are no longer living in conditional obedience. They have come out of the shadows. Matter of fact, they may be the only two followers of Jesus at this point that are really out of the shadows at this particular point, except for some of the women that were there at the cross and John, his, his disciple John. And these two, they have all the credentials. They have all the, 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 the credibility to cause those that they were around to go, huh, well, that's, that's interesting that these two have come out of the shadows now, that they're putting it all on the line now we should say, hmm, that's interesting. So let's consider the method of Jesus' burial because I tell you, it required a careful plan. It, it required a careful plan. You see, the, uh, when a crucifixion would take place on the eve of a Sabbath, um, the bodies had to be taken down and they had to be disposed of before nightfall. That's just the, the, the way it was. That was an understanding that Rome had with Israel. They did their best to try to comply with that, to try to make sure there was peace there. And this was uh, not just any ordinary Sabbath. This was actually uh, Passover. This is the most holy day of the year. This is the most holy of all the Sabbaths. So from the time of Jesus' death, which we read takes place in the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., uh, to when the body must be fully dealt with, that'd be the, the 12th hour, um, 6 p.m., nightfall, right? Because in, in moments, that's where they begin their next day. The moment that night comes upon them, that's the beginning of the next day in the Jewish calendar, and that's the beginning of the Sabbath. But here, and here's the thing. There would be plenty of time in those three hours to take a body and throw it in a dump. But how in the world are you going to, to give Jesus even a quick Jewish burial with those kinds of time constraints? So many scholars believe that Joseph and, and Nick were standing at the ready, that they had a, a plan and that they had all the supplies ready to give Jesus a, a proper burial. Consider these facts. In Mark 15, 
Joseph moved so quickly to request Jesus' body after Jesus had died that Pilate, and I'm, I'm reading now from, from Mark, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So from Pilate's mind, he's like, well, this is the time that we actually begin to go and break prisoners' legs so that they can no longer lift themselves up to take another breath. And by doing so, we expedite the, the, how they die, suffocation. But as they came to Jesus, he had already given up his spirits. And the centurion attested that and said, yeah, yeah, he was already dead. And so Pilate's like, all right, you can have the body. Another um, thing to consider, another fact to consider is that they came to the burial um, with all the needed burial linens and 75 pounds of very expensive burial spices. Um, I am sure that as they got the body to the garden where they would prepare Jesus' body, that they would uh, uh, do their very best to, with every wound he had to remove the dry blood, all the debris that would have been there from wood to glass to leather to stone, all that, they'd do their best to remove that. And then they would wrap his body with these burial linens and then they would cover it with these burial spices, 75 pounds of spices to try to uh, keep the smell down and then they probably wrapped it again with another layer of, uh, of burial linens. And, I, and, and I, I'm guessing that they spent two plus hours with the body of Jesus because Joseph had moved so quickly, waiting to, 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 to go and, and get audience with Pilate. They got the body. They've prepared the body. Um, they brought the body, this, this, this final fact, they brought the body to a brand new grave, a newly hewn grave, just a stone's throw away from Golgotha, the place of the skull is what that means, where most crucifixions would take place. So once Jesus' body had been wrapped in the burial linens and the spices, he would have been placed in a shelf in that tomb, and then a large one to 2,000 pound um, round stone would have been rolled into place. This thing was about six feet tall and a foot thick, and two men can move it into place, and they moved it into place, and, uh, and, they, and they sealed the entrance of the grave. Oh, oh by the way, it's interesting to note that, uh, that, that this particular spot, this garden, was literally a stone's throw away from Golgotha. And you know who owned the grave? Joseph. Joseph had, uh, he owned the grave. He had had it uh, recently dug out. No body had been laid in that grave. And we should say, hmm, ah, that's interesting. Oh, by the way, Pilate then places a full Roman detachment of guards at the tomb. And he seals the tomb's entrance with the Roman seal. And nobody, nobody is going to tamper with this body. Once again, we say, hmm, that's interesting. Joseph and Nick had made a plan. They were determined that their Messiah would get a proper burial. And it seems that so was God. So was God, which brings us to the, the meaning in Jesus' burial, and that is this, that Jesus must be God. The meaning in Jesus' burial is that Jesus must be God. You see, Joseph and Nicodemus, as noble as these men were, we're not going to risk their reputation and risk their livelihoods for a rabbi. 
for simply a good teacher. But they were going to put it on the line to make sure that their Messiah and that their king was given a proper burial. Um, And by the way, they knew that this uh, was all taking place on the Passover uh, when Israel would uh, be offering up a bleeding lamb for her sins because they knew that they had uh, found Jesus and and God was offering up the true spotless lamb uh, in Jesus. Uh, Trouble had found their friend. Trouble had found their Messiah. And these two come out of the shadows to risk everything. At the same time, I think that God was ensuring that the prophecies concerning Jesus' death, uh, that it would take place among the rich, in a rich man's grave is what it says on Isaiah 53, that, that that would take place, that that would happen. He was looking ahead to something else as well. Something that I don't think any of, his, of Jesus' disciples could wrap their mind around, even though Jesus did allude to it, but none of them could, could, could see this, and that was that God was ensuring that the body of Jesus would rest in a secured location so that when the resurrection took place, it could be authenticated. Like we know where this thing happened, nobody got near this body, how in the world did this happen? So the meaning in Jesus' burial is that Jesus must be God because it's, it's fitting, it's a fitting um, burial for a Messiah, for their king, that he be buried with dignity and honor. And these two were going to make sure that that happened. Also, uh, because he was verifiably dead. Jesus was truly human. They, they um, addressed that corpse for well over two hours. If anybody would have known whether he was alive or dead, they would have known it. And I doubt that they would have wrapped him up and placed him in that grave if he was still alive. He was clearly dead, um, which means he was uh, clearly human. He was a, he was a, there was a corpse. So he was truly man. And we're going to find out at the point of the resurrection that he's truly God as well. And then finally, his coming resurrection must have been supernatural because no one was getting near that body once that grave was sealed. Nobody was. And, and here's why that's so important. Because skeptics like Ted <laughs> would ask and point fingers and accuse in the centuries that followed. No doubt those who showed up right there in the midst of as this was unfolding uh, in, uh, in real time They had their questions as well, but so was so many through time. And remember this, Nick was that skeptic. Nicodemus, when he came to Jesus that night, he knew that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. But that wasn't enough, Jesus points out, to see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born again. Right, he says, Jesus pushes back against Nick's logic and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on and he says, so as Moses um, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus was pointing to a time in Israel's history that Nicodemus would have been very, very clear on. The time of the Exodus, when God had rescued his people from Egypt and brought them out, they grumbled against God, and so there's 40 years of wilderness wandering where guess what they find? 
all kinds of dead, deadly snakes would come up in and around the camp, asps and cobras, and the people were getting bits. Some were dying, and so they cried out to Moses, what do we do? And Moses says to God, what do we do? And God says, I want you to form a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole, put it in the middle of camp, and when anybody is bit, before that poison can reach their, their heart uh, or their mind, they are to cast their gaze upon this provision that God had, had made for them, and they will be saved. A.W. Tozer says, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Real simple, isn't it? Real simple. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. You want to know what it looks like? You want to know what faith looks like? It's, it's turning, knowing that you have been bitten by this serpent, and you turn your gaze to a saving God. Because you and I may never be bit, probably won't be, by an asp or a cobra. We don't risk that poison reaching our brains and our heart, but the truth is there is another serpent, no doubt, of a diabolical nature. And all you have to do is look around and you recognize in the world around us, the world is broken, and guess what? My life is pretty broken as well. And we cast our gaze is what we are called to do, to cast the gaze of our soul upon a saving God. And he rescues us. He saves us. He destroys the deadly poison of sin and death. That's what Jesus was pointing to, saying, I was that one who had to be lifted up. And so my question is this. Have you turned the gaze of your soul upon the saving face of Jesus? Have you turned the gaze of your soul upon the saving face of Jesus? If all this took place, if his death took place, and he really is the Son of God, all this really, really matters. And what we learn is that he's the only one who can save us. So at the end of that year at A&M, I got the short straw. I was going to go down and I was going to clean out the apartment, get it ready so we can hand it back to the apartment complex, hopefully get some kind of money back from um, from that. And uh, late in the evening, I get a phone call, and it is Ted on the phone. And I'm telling you, he was the last guy I wanted to talk to that evening. And Ted says, uh, he says, Shannon, are you at the apartment? I'm like, yeah. Remember, landline still. They don't have the cell phone thing. So yeah, I'm here. And he's like, uh, man, I'm coming over, and I've got a surprise. I hang up the phone and, I, and I, I swear to you, all I could think about was all the places where I had let the fear of and the praise from men cause me to compromise my obedience to Ted, all the ways that I felt like I had failed God and, and uh, my thoughts are interrupted by the knock on the door and I open the door and there is Ted soaking wet and before I get the question out of my mouth, the obvious question like what? He gives me this big old bear hug, big wet bear hug and he says, guess what? I just got baptized. I'm like, what? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> what happened? He said, well, I wasn't going to tell you, awkward, but I began this study on campus with this group of navigators, and we went through the Gospel of John, and I realized that that was the truth. It had all made sense, and I couldn't walk away from it anymore, no matter how loud I protested. 
And all I could think about was, God, how did you do this? Like, how in the world did you use such a poor, shoddy example of my life to do this? Ted apologized for the ways, all the things he said, and said, thank you for the truth that you put out there in front of me and having the courage to do it. So Jesus plunged into darkness, you guys, on your behalf and my behalf in order to restore creation, to kill this deadly poison caused by the serpent who seeks to destroy our world, but also so that each of us would come out of the shadows and into the light, carrying out all the good works that God has planned for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you for the the significance of the significance of your death and your burial and why it matters so much and why it shows up in all four of the gospel accounts. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to come out of the shadows and to bring honor to you with our lives. Father, I pray for anyone here that knows that you are the one who was lifted up on our behalf to save us from the, the poison of sin and death so that we could have life. In the name of your son, Jesus. So I don't often do this. Matter of fact, I, I've not done this here in big church before, but I just want to give anyone a chance to um, ask, can we bring down the lights just a little bit so it doesn't feel quite so stark in here? And uh, if you'd like to come down and just, uh, you can pr- come down with a friend, you can come down with somebody in your family, you can come down and talk to me, I don't care. But I just um, have felt like the Lord saying, Shannon, we need to have a time for people to respond. So that's what this time is. I'd love for to, to pray with you if you'd like to come down and do that as Mary plays. We'll give it just a few minutes.